Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Dr. Steve Iacovelli. Steve is an author of a book called Pride Leadership. He's the CEO and founder of Top Dog Learning Group and he's known as the Gay Leadership Dude. And today we're going to do a bit of a deep dive around diversity, equity and inclusion with a little bit of a slant towards sexual orientation and to give us some tips and understanding about how do we create a workplace based on inclusion where we can allow people to show up as their authentic self and bring their true self to work every day. So I'm really excited about today's conversation. So without any further ado, Steve, I would love it if you would say hello to the audience and I'd love to understand a bit of your background because it hasn't always been in this area and what then drew you to have this focus that you have today. Great. Thank you so much, Mick. And I'm, I'm really excited to be here and, and, and talk all things inclusive leadership with folks out there. As Mick said, Dr. Steve Vaccavelli pronounced he, him and his. And I do currently own Top Dog Learning Group and the, the founding partner and owner. But prior to that, I've, I've done a, a bunch of different things. I, I basically spent my whole career, which is about almost 30 years in this space, so leadership, inclusion, etc. At one point, I worked at the Walt Disney Company and I was I worked for Disney Cruise Line, which was a sweet gig, I have to say. And I I did leadership coaching basically for the onboard crew and officers and the folks at, at Disney's private island in the Caribbean. And that's where I was first exposed to the concepts of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because that was one of the facets that as a leadership consultant, we would kind of teach on board the ships and such. And that kind of became this, this running theme in the different roles and areas I worked with. I was an IBMer um, as a change management consultant for a while. I was a professor for like a hot minute after I got my doctorate, which was not my jam. But the concept of inclusive leadership has always been that running thread. And uh, when I started Top Dog Learning Group as my full-time gig 15 years ago, it was actually a side hustle in 20, 2002 while I was at Disney and it kind of kept sitting on the back burner. 2008, I decided, yeah, let's make a go of this and see what happens. And 15-ish years, that's been my, my full-time focus ever since. Very good. And congratulations on your success. You've built a great career from there. It's interesting the way it's uh, built up. What did you learn about yourself during that journey? So particularly around some of those organizations that you're talking about, what did you learn about yourself? I think the biggest thing I learned is that I have a gift, a blessing, whatever is the right thing, is being able to tell stories and connect with folks at, at, at any level within the business. Whether I'm working with a you know a, a CEO at a Fortune 500 or a frontline worker servicing clients at the, at the guest service counter or whatever that looks like. Somehow, I guess I'm able to connect with folks and, and build rapport in those different ways. And, and that hasn't always been the case for some of my peers. I'm very fortunate that way. Yeah, that's a good reflection to know. And it is a superpower. And it's good that you know that strength and it's great that you use it for very great purposes as you progress. I am very curious. This is very new territory to me, but did you always know? Yeah. So tell us about that. 
Actually, I did not. I mean, you know, you only know your developmental experience through your own lens. So there's that. And, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s now and I grew up in the uh, bulk part of the 80s ish. And, you know, there was not many, you know, LGBTQ plus folks that I could look at on TV or in the movies or whatever it looks like. And if you did, they were usually a punchline or something you know, more derogatory or the BFF of the, the main female lead of whatever. <laughs> you know, so insert, you know, my best friend's wedding here. But, you know, I, I didn't figure out my authentic self until uh, after college. After my undergraduate experience, and yeah, it was it was an interesting journey. Uh, as I've, I've shared with you know other people, including my parents, you know, I'm so thankful some of these younger folks today, and I sound like an old man. These younger folks today, <laughs> but they're able to figure their authentic selves out while they're in adolescence. Because as you get older, and then realize, oh wait, I think I'm gay, or I believe I'm I'm on this area of the Kinsey scale. You have to kind of almost go through adolescence again, and it stinks the first time. So to do it a second time just wasn't fun. But, you know, luckily, uh, um, you know, I was surrounded by a, a great peer group who's still very close to this day. And and then but I, I was very fortunate that I did figure myself out and uh, who I authentically was right around the time I went into the workforce. And so, you know, right old age of 24 or so, had my undergraduate degree. And then I started putting the pieces together. And so I, I can actually say that as long as I've known who authentic Steve Iacovelli is, that's who I've been in the workplace. And and even at, at the age of 24, back in the, the 90s, if you want to, you know, Google some cool songs from then. So, and, and I've never kept it a secret. I've never been in the closet per se. Although according to some of the latest Gallup studies, it's about 40 plus percent of you, at least US based LGBTQ, uh, I say plu, not plus just because it sounds cooler, uh, but LGBTQ plu folks um, are actually in the closet. And so I'm, you know, one of the things that we do in some of the work that I do with queer leaders is to hopefully get them to that comfort level to see that their queerness is actually a, a leadership superpower and how they can leverage that to be an even more effective leader within their workplace. There is so much to unpack with what you just said. There's multiple topics. I want to start with the one that you said about not seeing yourself on the big screen, right? So let's say the word stereotype, whether it be any kind of media, TV, movies, etc. It was for a very long period of time. For a long period of time, it wasn't there at all. Then when it was there, it became a stereotype. And now it's getting better. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that we're not there yet, but it's, it's getting better in terms of more a reflection of of society is what you see on the screen in most cases, not all. With that, how much do you think that plays in a role of our social conditioning? So therefore, you know, we all learn from growing up with whether it be Sesame Street through to Hollywood movies, whatever the case may be, we all get some level of growing up and education through the media that we watch and then all the way through to what we then act and how we behave either in the workplace or in social settings. I'll, I'll give an example that's got nothing to do with gender and just say there's a big thing going around the internet at the moment to say that Friends was underlying it was racist because there, there was a, a very poor lack of any other kind of ethnicity than white 30-something or 20-something yuppies, right? So how much does social conditioning of how we grew up and the media media that we consumed, and now it would, be, it would be social media that we consume, how much of that social conditioning then comes through and how we behave in the workplace? 
Yeah, there's a phrase that's often used, representation matters, and it's true. You know, you you see companies like Mattel now uh, really listening to consumers about Barbie and her very unrealistic body shape and, and what that looks like. And now you're seeing very different Barbie dolls out there with various body shapes, and it's beautiful. And But that's more representative of the human experience. You, you see, you know, commercials that are showing, uh, there's this one beautiful Gillette commercial I, I witnessed not too long ago, where it's dad teaching a son how to shave, but the son's a trans young man. And so teaching him how to shave, you know, which that's a universal thing, but just really putting that bit of representation out there. And and I think it's an awesome thing when people are like, oh, you're being so woke, which woke is not a dirty word, but for some people it is, you know, what that's doing is shining a light that, you know what, this, this group has not been represented in the past or historically, or at least not a lot. That's part of who humanity is. Yes. Let's shine a spotlight on, on their existence and, and elevate them just like we would any other demographic out there in the human race. Yeah. All right. Well said. I want to come now to your experience. And I was going to ask you the question about coming up, but you've said that it never really happened. So that, that was very clear. Let me jump in, Mick. One of the things, though, I will say is that, and for any queer folks who are out there, you are constantly coming out. I mean, I'm 52 years old, and I'm continually to having to come out to clients, every, well, except when they see my my self described title as the gay leadership dude. It's pretty darn out there. But otherwise, if they don't know that, you know, I have to make that conscious decision: Do I talk about my husband of 25 years or whatever that looks like? All right. So my question, I can work that in then. Where my question was going is your feeling of any kind of discrimination or any kind of non-inclusiveness and how it manifests itself either with people that just didn't know and were, let's say, said inappropriate things or, you know, they're not, the awareness is not there. They, they don't know. They don't know how to reflect with that versus ones that then did know and then still ended up in a situation that didn't make you feel not included or discriminated against. So this, this thing about knowing versus not knowing and what was your lived experience with that? Well, you know, that's that's one of the interesting things about being a member of the LGBTQ plus community is gross generalization, but you choose to disclose your authentic self to people or not. And there's lots of different facets of diversity that that's the case. You know, if I'm neurodivergent, I might not. And for those who don't know what that means, it's the human mind acts on a bunch of different ways, not just a one single mode, if you will. So that neurodiversity and that can look like a lot of different things. But I will have to choose to disclose that if, if I am neurodivergent. You know, other things about who I am and what makes me me, I may not be, quote unquote, obvious to someone who's just meeting me. So I have to decide or choose what that looks like. And I think for a lot of humans who have various degrees of their makeup and demographics, and that's what makes humanity beautiful and awesome and unique. But, you know, we leverage things like, "Ooh, am I safe with this person or these people? If I tell them what my demographic status is that is not obvious, will it put me in an awkward position? Position. Will it maybe not even let me advance in the workplace or, or whatever big or small things? Those are thoughts that are often going through the head of any of us, quote unquote, others. And so what we do, and it's really a Maslow's hierarchy of needs situation, you know, that's if you're not familiar with that listening, you know, Maslow, behavioral psychologist decided to organize, you know, what humans need to both survive and thrive. And it's a nice little pyramid. You start at the bottom, work your way up. Well, the, the first level is like, you know, physiological needs, you know, well, we need air, we need water, we need food. 
food. We need sleep. But the next level up is safety. And that's where a lot of us in this you know underrepresented minority category are operating on from an unconscious or conscious perspective. Are we safe? You know, are we there? And, th- and this is where you see a lot of things like pronoun usage, for example, in my email. You know, why is it there? Well, pronouns are just like you talk addressing a human. And if I you, you get, hey, Mike, you know, well, you know, that's a little offensive. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, my name's Mick. Oh, okay, cool. Well, hey, Mike, now I did it again. Now that's kind of insulting because I'm not really honoring who you are. Pronouns are exactly the same way. And so if I put that in my email signature, or if you're watching this, you can see it's in my Zoom um, at thing, he, him, I normalize it, I make it known, but I'm also sending a message to other queer folks that, hey, I'm a safe space. And I got you if you need to find a safe harbor or safe protector or somebody to be an ally standing in front, aside, or behind you. And that's why we do these types of things to really create those safe, inclusive spaces. Once again, you're bringing up, so this conversation is now going to go for 17 hours because you keep on bringing up. <laughs> Parts of 12. <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. All right. So you bring up pronouns and there is a lot of discussion around pronouns and identity, like how I identify myself. I, I identify as that statement. And there's a lot of people out there that are feeling like it's getting out of hand, right? So that it started out as something beautiful as, yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful celebration of who you are through to comedians making the most of it, I have to say that you know, all kinds of, you know, sometimes funny, mostly not jokes around it. Have we gone too far with pronouns and identification? Yeah. Tell us. I don't think we've gone far enough, in my opinion. You know, and I'll, I'll pull this in from a leadership perspective. Our job as leaders is to create as inclusive spaces as we can so people can do the job and really enjoy what they're doing. And then side note, in this day and age, we want to keep people for doing the job and enjoying it because, you know, it, it's hard to find right fit talent and it costs a lot of money to replace folks. But smart leaders are thinking, how can I create an inclusive space for all folks, regardless of who they are? And, you know, pronoun usage is just one little way that we can do that. And you know, by just me saying, hey, Steve Iacovelli, pronouns he, him and his, you know, how much effort did that take? You know, I mean, it's a, a millisecond of my time. You know, how hard is it for me to put in my Zoom? Here's my pronouns. You know, if that's really hard for someone to do, I think there's bigger things afoot than just you know, being inclusive with pronoun usage. There might be some other views of the world that might be have the at Disney. We said never said a problem. We said an area of opportunity. There might be an area of opportunity for us to explore if that leader is really kicking and screaming about putting a pronoun in their email. All right. What about the other one that's coming up a lot these days is then in an inclusive manner, and I'm going to say driven with good intentions, this debate around trans athletes, right? So we end up in a situation where people that are biologically born differently, but identify themselves in a certain way are then competing against people that were born biologically differently. Where do you sit on this debate around athletes and competing for Olympic gold medals, all of these things? So I will preface this by saying, even as the gay leadership dude, I'm not an expert on all things queer. So I'll, I'll own that right now. But I know that there's bigger, smarter experts in varieties of places like the Olympic Committee and all the different sporting um, kind of overseeing groups that have the right expertise who are looking into this. You know, here in the States, you know, there's been rules and studies looking at college athletes and what does it mean from a hormonal perspective and all those things to be considered a college athlete. So you know, who am I as just some rando queer guy to say, I don't think she or he or they should compete. You know, like that's not for me to say. I do think that 
a lot, and I'll say it again, a lot of all this hype is just political theater. And it's just a way to rattle one group against another. And I don't think that's right. So, you know, I, I think there's case by case basis, basis, <laughs> of course. But I think that at, at the end of the day, you know, if a kid wants to go play a sport, who the heck am I to stop them? That's not my, that's not where I should be. And I think we really need to think long and hard about what is it that we're trying to do? There's position and intent uh, to kind of paraphrase the um, one of the Harvard models of, of negotiation. You know, people have that position, you know, trans athletes shouldn't do it. Well, what's what's the reason? Why are you there? Is it just because you really think it's unfair? Great. Let's unpack that. Let's get those experts in. Let's get scientists who are looking at this thing versus some random political person. But if, if you're doing it just because, you know, you, God didn't shouldn't make them or insert deity of choice here. Well, you know, the world isn't just through your world lens. And maybe there's a lot of different ways we could approach this as, as human beings and being humankind. And I think that's the position I typically kind of stake, especially when it comes to, to trans athletes. Yeah. All right. Well said. And I think there are a lot of people commenting way out of their field. And I'm glad that you brought it up in that way. And I think that we're nowhere near the end of that story. And let's see what happens in terms of where that all goes. You brought up the term woke before and woke does get a dirty word about it, that people are woke, 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 all of these kind of things. The way I look at woke, and I'd love to hear from you, is the form of being awake, as in I was previously not aware of topic XYZ. I've been through my own journey of discovery. I have evolved my views of the world. I'm now woke. And I don't see that as a bad thing, but where it gets labeled as a bad thing is is when it starts being used as almost like a political football, like you said. So where did we go wrong with the word woke and how can we realign and go, what's wrong with being aware? Yeah. I mean, it started in the 1930s with African-Americans who were being disenfranchised. And that's where the phrase stay woke came to being like, hey, friends, you keep your eyes peeled for injustice, you know, kind of to your exact appointment. And what's happened, and I'm for better or for worse, it started here in the States. Folks kind of took that word and were trying to make it synonymous with, you know, quote unquote, the liberal agenda and, you know, being so woke. And I, I say that sitting here in uh, Florida, in the U.S., which for those outside of the U.S. who may or may not know, my state government and my, especially my governor is insanely exclusive in their type of leadership. And I'm also using quotes around that because in my opinion, it's not very good leadership. It's not really leadership at all, but that I digress, you know, has, has used that as, as almost like a dog whistle or rallying cry against diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. And, and that's where I think things started going wrong. You know, it, it's this mentality that if you are more inclusive, you're going to be exclusive to those other folks. And those other folks would be, you know, the historically folks in power, <laughs> white cisgendered men, typically of Christian background. And that's not what it means. All woke means is you're aware of injustice and you seek out ways to balance and be inclusive. You know, I, I right now, it, the, the jury is still out, no pun intended, whether I can teach inclusive leadership in my home state. You, There are laws that are working their way through. They're currently being challenged by the judicial system. But right now here in the state of Florida, it is technically illegal or just about to be, depending on when you listen to this, for any public university, any public
public entity within the state of Florida to teach diversity, equity, inclusion. That's illegal. You can't do it. They are now in the midst of trying to eliminate certain majors within public universities, meaning public universities that get funding from the state as well as federal level. Federals looks at things differently, but in the state level here in Florida, they're eliminating African-American studies, gender studies, any student union, like you have the, the Asian American student union, which is like a group of students of Asian heritage and Asian descent who, you know, band together and do their thing. Black student unions also going away or becoming illegal. The gay straight alliances, that's going away, at least trying to at the state level here in Florida. And that's what's really frustrating for someone like me is that, well, one, that's completely opposite of my value system. So that's a little frustrating. But two, as a business owner who's paying taxes within this state, my money that my business makes teaching diversity, equity, inclusion is actively going against inclusion efforts within the state of Florida. And that's where the opportunity is to educate folks and, and to really remove this woke, anti-wokeness, you know, and using that word to really get back to what the phrase is intended to mean. This doesn't happen on the show very often, Steve, but I'm shocked. Absolutely shocked me here. There's sometimes I think we're making progress and I look at the world and I go, oh, yeah, compared to when I was growing up, we've made progress. And I hope that's still the case. But then when I'm hearing this, are, are we really making progress? Like there's one thing to be have a lack of awareness and for society to wake up, if you like, and to come into the light and to become more aware and more inclusive. It's another thing to make something illegal. That's got awareness and then prohibiting it. That's appalling. Correct. Well, you hear me being slightly upbeat. And it's not that I'm not upset about any of this. I am more of a positive glass half full kind of person. And the half fullness, not F-O-O-L-ness, fullness, F-U-L. But what I take away from all this is 2044. That's the year that here in the United States, typically underrepresented minorities will collectively make up the majority of the U.S. population. So white folks will be in the minority for the first time ever, 2044. And I think that you can't stop that train. I mean, that, that's just happening. It is what it is. And I think some folks are really wicked uncomfortable with that. And this is, you know, the last ditch efforts of people going kicking and screaming and trying to ret- retain some semblance of power, whatever that is. And, and I think that's what we're seeing that you know, all of this pendulum going to the one way is a, a reaction to society already going the path of being more inclusive. It's not going to stop. You can't unring that bell. But I think it's some people, some organizations, some perspectives who are just going into the progressive future kicking and screaming. We're potentially going to go out of our swim lane again here. So just pull me back if I go too far here. But what do you think gets into the psychology of a lawmaker that gets so, I'm going to say, passionate, driven, whatever, so focused that they end up creating laws about things that make them uncomfortable? It's pandering and power is how I'd summarize it. Yeah, so tell me pandering. Pandering was one I was going to bring up. Now, now part of this, like I'm sitting in Australia and saying this, so I hope I do not offend half, more than half of our audience. I think 66% of our audience are in the US, by the way, or 60 something percent. So I'm at the risk here of offending you, Steve, and also 60% of my audience. But the US political system is quite broken, right? Oh, you don't offend me. It's broken. 100% broken. No, you don't offend me at all. And we end up with lawmakers, and I'm definitely on dangerous ground here to bring up guns, but we end up in a situation where lawmakers are getting bankrolled by people with agendas, and then those agendas are ending up in political stances and laws. Is that part of this? 
Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, again, areas of opportunity for the political system in, in the U.S. And, and some other countries, let's, let's be honest, to really make some changes to be more representative, if that's the type of government you have, of the people. And, and yes, big money is a big problem with it. And then money tends to be the root of all evil, doesn't it? Money and power go hand in hand anyway. And, you know, like I will jump on the gun bandwagon here for a second. I grew up with guns. You know, my dad is an avid hunter. I have zero issues with gun ownership. If it's done the right way, you know, I mean, to drive a car, what did I have to do as a kid? I had to study. I had to go through licensing. I had to take a test, that renewal, blah, 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 blah. But now I can drive and I'm okay. Why should that be different than something as deadly as a firearm? So I'm just, you know, things like that really irk me because it just makes sense. It's not trying to take someone's guns away, but it's just trying to do it in a responsible way that benefits everyone's freedom, not just a certain group of folks. And, And yes, we have a lot of work to do in this country. It's sometimes daunting, but you know, how do you eat an elephant? You don't because they're beautiful creatures, but jokingly aside, you know, how do you eat an elephant? We just got to take one bite at a time. All right. Very good. And I'll just add to your car metaphor. Did you have to register your car? Yes, of course I did. Exactly. All right, let's get back to the workplace now. And this one is one that I sometimes personally battle with, but I I believe I've made a lot of personal progress in this space, but there's a lot of people out there that will benefit from this conversation. And we're going to go into the area around equity and equality and the difference between that. I'm going to say discrimination and inclusion, right? So this this can be a, a challenging one for people. So one element, whether it's race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, et cetera, one argument will be to just be, and you and I off off air, we use the term colorblind, just be non-discriminatory. I don't care what your background is, what your age, your sex, your sexual orientation. I don't care. I'm going to treat everyone the same versus creating an environment where people can celebrate who they are, show up as who they really are and bring all of that diversity of background and experience to the table. So what, what advice can you give to people that sometimes battle with that delineation between just being non-discriminatory versus celebratory. Yeah. And as we were talking before, and and for those who are watching the video, you see a graphic behind me. For those who aren't, I'll, I'll describe it for you. It's explaining the, the concepts of you know, equality versus equity and, and, and ultimately justice. And so equality is just that, you know, I don't care what your background is. You know, you want a resource, everybody gets the same one. And the graphic behind me, there's a tree where there's, you know, one side of the, tr- the tree is kind of leaning to one side. There's two little kids who are trying to pick apples off the tree. One, you know, they both have the exact same ladder, but one kid, because the bend of the tree is the harvesting apples left and right, where the other kid, same ladder size, is just like, I can't reach the tree because it bends the other way. And so equality is thinking that you know one solution fits all. And in some situations, that's true. That's okay. You know, if I'm a, a boss who's doing my annual performance reviews, I better engage in equality, you know, looking at the performance of each person individually, but having the same concept of what success, quote unquote, looks like across the board. Yes, that's fine. But then you look at the, the, the concept of um, equity and equity is understanding this, you know, where the starting point for the individual is and making reasonable accommodations accordingly. And the graphic back to the, the kids trying to pick apples in the tree, the tree leaning one side, where the, the kid who, who is on the side where the, the tree is leaning away from them, they get a taller ladder. So now both kids have the opportunity to harvest the apples based upon where they're starting at. And I think we as smart leaders can leverage both of these just as 
as well. You know, when we talk about, you know, an, an open job listing, for example, I often have folks say, well, is that equality or equity? And it's like, well, it kind of depends on the situation or the context. You know, I work with a lot of uh, global manufacturing clients, for example, and they realize that historically speaking, you know, one, a lot of their fields have been dominated by white men. You know, let's just be blunt. And then some of them where they go to recruit at universities, you know, well, we're going to the engineering program. We can't help it. It's all white, white men. Great. Where else can you go? Or you, uh, you're posting your open you call for CVs on this one website. Well, demographically, who goes to that website? And so you have to start having some mindfulness from a leadership perspective on are we engaging in equality when we really should be thinking about equity and, and being mindful of the difference between the two. Really good illustration. I love the picture that's behind you for those that are watching the video. And that's exactly what it's about. It's about giving, giving, it's about the difference between a level playing field and leveling the playing field. So leveling the playing field is taking proactive action to enable everyone to contribute and to feel included. Whereas a a level playing field would be just, okay, here it is, everyone come. And if you don't have the same privilege or advantage as anyone else, too bad. Right. So it's a really good illustration. And Nick, and just to kind of finish out the, the graphic that's behind me for those who can't see, then we get to the concept of justice. And, and in the illustration, back to the apples and the trees, there's been some supports pushing the tree straight up and down so that both kids can use the exact same size ladder. So what we're doing is, is justice is about changing the system. We're changing the context so that we don't have to engage in, in equity where equality will fit just fine. And so that's kind of, you know, that's a bigger picture. Sometimes that's that's harder than a business or a workplace can do, but that's kind of the concept is, can we change the context of, you know, sometimes society so that everything goes to that equality space where everyone gets the same resources and we're good to go. Clearly, we're not there yet for many, many facets, but that's what justice, you know, when you hear social justice, that's kind of what it's striving toward. Yeah. All right. Very good. What I want to go now to is then the benefits of diversity and, and where this all goes, particularly around things like diversity of thought. All right. So I'll share a personal story. One company that I worked for for a decade and a half, I very much love that. I don't work there anymore, but I very much love that company. I owe them a huge gratitude in terms of a lot of my upbringing and what I learned there, et cetera, et cetera. But when I joined that company, it's a different company now, but when I joined that company, the entire COMEX, so this is the executive leadership team at a global level were all middle to older, middle-aged to older French white men. That's it. All right. So now it's a, it's a little bit different, but what I want to hear your thoughts are around the benefits of diversity of thought and having people with different backgrounds and experiences and lived experiences around that table, whether it's setting the strategy or dealing with a problem, where do you think all of this leads towards in terms of diversity of thought? So thank you for asking that, Mick. I think it's a really, really great question. And I'll answer it through a story. I was working with a global manufacturing company and they had brought myself and, and one of my top doggers, which is what I call my consultants, into their workplace because they're, um, and they design like household gadgets and stuff was one of their product lines. And so they, they realized though, to their credit, that their design team, both here in the US as well as in Europe, were very white male centric. And they, they realized that. 
they're like, we need to figure this out because again, get about diversity of thought, you know, diverse, uh, when you have a homogeneous population, innovation is less because people are thinking along the same lines in a broad, you know, generalization. And you can Google a uh, business case for diversity and inclusion and stuff like that. And you can find some great research on how gender in the C-suite affects the bottom line of a publicly traded business, how a board of directors in a Fortune 500, if it's diverse, the company tends to do better. But going back to a work team, yeah, I mean, when you have different people, they look at things differently for solutions and they bring a diverse perspective. So we worked with this client to kind of get them thinking through, you know, how can you source your uh, project team people? Can you pull people in from not even from the design area to help see things for prototypes and stuff like that? And so they're doing really great. Flash forward, you know, we did our, our stuff. We did our training, all that stuff. We left. I got this email not long after. They're like, hey, Steve, we just want to give you an update. We're about to design this new widget thing. And we really thought about what you and your team said. And, you know, th- this is kind of who the group is. And it's we're really excited to move forward. Like, awesome. Good. You be you. That's fantastic. Flash forward, maybe about seven months later, get another email from the client. Actually, no, she called me. She's like, I have to tell you a funny story. I'm like, okay. And she said, you know, we, we did exactly what we said we were going to do. We had this great diverse team. We went through the whole design process, went, went to beta testing and finally took it to market and realized that the, the widget that they created could only be used by right-handed people. So they, they didn't think through that 12-ish percent of the global population is left-handed. So they immediately, by not having diversity of thought, eliminated a chunk of their market share. And and I, I hate that they experienced that, but I love that she, she called and, and owned it. I mean, yeah, it's still sold and that's fine, but they realized it wasn't as inclusive of a product because that diversity thought wasn't part of the mix, even though they thought they had it. And I just think that's an interesting way for us to think about, you know, any leader out there who thinks they're, we got all bases covered, I guarantee you won't. But at least trying to have those those different perspectives is where you get the wins. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love that story. That's uh, it illustrates it perfectly. All right. Now let's go to another problem that I see and we are getting there. Like I do think we're making progress, but we've gone through a phase of tokenism. So inclusion or diversity, I'll I'll say diversity first push was, I'm going to say manifested itself as tokenism, right? And I'll talk about gender here for a moment because this is the one that I know best in this regard, which is in the boardroom of different companies, we are seeing an increasing number of women leaders represented in the room, but I'm still seeing that their voice is not there, right? So they might be at the table, but being at the table is not enough. The voice is not there. It's not heard. It's not recognized, etc. And I'll be really open with you, Steve, and say that I've been in meetings where a female executive has brought up a clangor of idea and the conversation has continued and then a, you know, a stereotype typical white businessman has then brought up almost the identical idea, rephrased it a little bit, whatever the case may be. And everyone's, oh, yeah, what Jim said. It's like, it was no one else in the room when you heard Sally say that three minutes ago. It's like getting a seat at the table is not enough. How do we create truly inclusive workplaces and not just tokenism? Yeah. And, and it's a fantastic question. And it's a sad and often reoccurring instance, you know, and let's break down the definitions of some of these words, you know, diversity is the many similarities and differences between people, period. So that can be gender, sexual orientation, physical ability, you know, insert all the different ways we look at what makes humans, humans unique. So yes, diversity is, I always use the, actually my mentor at Disney when I first getting in here and other people have used this as well. So I, I know she didn't invent it, but they say diversity is being invited to the dance, open up the doors, everybody come on. 
on in. Now, inclusion is on that same line, being asked to dance, being an active member of the organization of the decision making, you know, that female executive, you know, is is not just being able to sit at the table, but their voice being heard. And so that's a different shift. That's you know, we can't just say, yay, we got this group in the mix and in our workforce. We're done. We're inclusive. No, you're diverse, but are you inclusive? You know, are you listening to those differences? But what smart businesses are starting to do now, Mick, is think about the concept of belonging. And so it's less about what we as the business do. Oh, we're hiring all these different people. Oh, they are a seat at the table, or at least allowing them to dance. Belonging is the perspective of the employee, not the business. And it's saying, hey, do you feel that you belong here? Do you feel that you're heard, you're seen, you're represented, you feel safe, you can be your authentic self within the workplace and it's okay. And so, you know, the dancing analogy then is I can dance however the heck I want and no one's going to judge me. And I know this is a very American joke, but if you've ever seen Seinfeld, which I know has been exported, so does that. But if you know Elaine, Elaine is one of the main characters. She is known for being a horrible dancer and it's okay. So if you Google Elaine Seinfeld dancing, you'll get some really good chuckles. But if I have a sense of belonging, I can dance like Elaine and no one's going to judge me or make fun of me. It is what it is. And I think smart companies are starting to think forward to that way versus just saying, yay, we have this demographic in the mix. Aren't we cool? All right. Very good. Now, the next one I want to talk about is unconscious bias, right? So looking forward to your view here. I'll just set the scene and then say we have someone that is openly gay in the workplace. So therefore they must love theatre. They must love dancing. They must, you know, be really well groomed. All of the stereotypes start coming to the fore. But I heard you before about saying how many you know people in the closet and, and your sexual orientation is across the spectrum of all facets of life. It could be a rugby player who likes drinking beer on Saturday afternoons through to the one that, let's say, the one that we see in movies, the one that we see in TV shows that likes theatre and likes dressing nicely and all of these things. How do we address unconscious bias when it comes to sexual orientation? This is like the 18th hour we can have this conversation. <laughs> this is one that we can unpack for quite a while. But, you know, I think with any stereotype that's out there, you know, the only stereotype to know is that all stereotypes are wrong. That's the only one that works because you will absolutely find an exemption to every rule. And, you know, one of the things that we can do, and, and we'll put this in the show notes, I actually have a free online training that goes around this, is to make ourselves prepared, aware and prepared for when we find those phrases that are being said or actions that are being done that are being exclusive. And I have a quick story and it's it's from the training, but it's absolutely true one. It's another workplace story. But, you know, I was in uh, Atlanta, myself and, and one of my other consultants, and we were at this conference or this in this conference room. It was a client site. We were finishing this big change management project we did. So it was really just like a feel good rah, rah, rah meeting. It was Lori and I and then 38 other folks from the client site and crammed in this little conference room. And at the, the head of the table in the conference room is the senior executive who was the sponsor of the project. And, you know, and he's there. He wrote literally wrote the checks to me. And, and he is his gender is important to the story, actually. And so we're just about to start and the voices are dying down. And you hear that senior executive say, well, you know, how all women draw. And everyone just kind of stopped and kind of looked, you know, and that was technically what you would call a microaggression, you know, a little ding against, in this case, women in the room. And but no one said a word. And so at that moment, in that moment of silence, every single one of us, all 39 other folks, except for that executive, were engaging in what's called silent collusion, meaning we were silently agreeing with what the stupid microaggression that he was saying, which absolutely was most likely coming out of his unconscious bias, you know, about women and their driving ability. 
And so what we can do as leaders is not engage in silent collusion. And so one, it takes some of that bit of awareness. And two, it takes some of that leadership courage that we often talk about. But three is, is tactfully being able to address those moments in those situations live in the moment so that you're not doing being disrespectful to the, in this case, the senior executive, but you're also saying, you know what, that's not how I roll. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and put up with that kind of exclusivity or negative attitudes toward, in this case, our female colleagues. And I think that's where we start to make a difference is when we as leaders can take the moment to address that. And then we as an overall workplace say, yeah, that's the right behavior, Steve. We don't want to engage in that kind of workplace culture that allows for those types of, of comments to go unchallenged. Yeah, well done. Well said. We get the behavior that we tolerate. And when we walk by, walk past a behavior that is really out of line in terms of our values and belief system, we're actually signaling acceptance. So yeah, really well said, Steve. That brings me to another topic that I really want to hear. You brought it up very early in our discussion. I want to come back to it now. It's the word allyship and how we can be better allies, but still avoid things like saviour complex, right? And I've had both examples of this and on the gender equality part, by the way, but I've had both examples of this where I do go out of my way to try to be a voice and be an ally for gender equality in the workplace. And I get some men that think that I do it for some kind of purpose that I'm self-aggrandizing. I don't even know how to say that word, but you know, I'm doing it for my own reasons. And then I get women I have had women say, oh, who, who do you to speak for me? You're, you're not a woman, etc." So how do we become a better ally without tripping over ourselves and actually making problems sometimes worse? Yeah, that's it's a fantastic question. And kudos for you for being an ally for women and quite frankly, hopefully non-binary folks out there because it's needed. You know, the only way success happens with any disenfranchised group is when allies step up and are are there and are seen. But to your point about you know, the savior type stuff. Yeah. So as I said earlier, allies can either stand in front of next to or behind the underrepresented group. And, and, and how do you know where to stand? You ask them. You know, I mean, you don't just assume as, as a white cisgender gay dude, I'm going to stand in front of my female colleagues or my trans siblings and be like, ah, I got you. No, they'd be like, get aside. You, this isn't your lived experience. However, you know, ask, asking them, say, where do you need me? Where do you need me most? And it might change from person to person or context to context. And then it also brings up the concept of performative allyship. And that's where we have to reflect in inward and, and performative allyship. If you're not familiar is as an example, June rolls around and every darn big company rainbow washes their logo. It's gorgeous. My LinkedIn is just flooded with rainbow logos here and there and everywhere. July 1st, back to their original color. And that's fine. You know, that's, but what's happening the other 11 months of the year with that company when it comes to supporting their queer employees? You know, again, right now I'm looking at every company that will rainbow wash their logo in June and saying, what are you saying right now as my state legislator is trying to pull away trans health care? And, you know, these are part of your workforce. What are you saying? What are you doing? How are you being a vocal ally? And if they're not, and we are all watching, then that's called performative allyship. And I, there's no time for that anymore. We need allies who are going to be active members of standing in front of, next to, or behind the disenfranchised groups. 
Well said. That does lead to another question I wanted to ask you today, which is the role of some of those celebrations. So last month here in Australia, we had a very successful Gay Pride Month and I thought it brought a lot of awareness. There was a lot of benefit to that. But to your point, what about the other 11 months of the year? International Women's Day. Most companies do something to celebrate International Women's Day, but it's actually the actions of what happens on the 364 other days that make the difference. So are these celebrations, like acknowledging the awareness it raises. Are those celebrations doing harm or good right now? I think they do their job. They bring awareness, heightened sense of sensitivity, and they give us, and that's a collective societal us, something to talk about in a, in a quote unquote timely manner. Yes, absolutely. However, you know, we should be talking about breast cancer awareness beyond October or insert any other focus here. And that's where I think is the opportunity for workplaces, for businesses to inclusive leaders to create those spaces so that conversations happen beyond whatever celebration month is occurring. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well said, Steve. So I want to bring us heading towards a close now, and this is the leadership project. So the most of, majority of our audience are out there wanting to be better leaders. They want to learn and grow. And our conversation, I'm hoping, has brought some light to some topics, made them stop and think and reflect on these topics. I want to leave them with some practical advice, and, and let's go with a leader who really wants to create an inclusive workspace, doesn't really know whether they're doing a good job, doesn't know where to start. Etc. What call to action could you give to that leader that wants to do better but isn't sure where to start? I love how you asked that, Mick. And I, we didn't plan this, folks who are listening or watching, because this is literally the, my keynote or one of my keynotes that I do is exactly this. How do we create consciously inclusive leaders? And I kind of boil it down to three areas. You know, you need to, as a leader, think in, speak up and act out. So the think in part is you start to uncover your own unconscious biases. There's lots of ways you can do that. If you Google Project Implicit, there is actually a, an online assessment that's free. You can take to potentially discover your uh, unconscious biases that you you might have. We can get into the whole conversation about its validity and reliability. It's been around a while and all that stuff. But it's one of many ways that we as, as leaders who want to do better can start to get our own you know, house in order, if you will. So thinking is, is just discovering all right, what unconscious biases do I have? And if you're listening or watching, you're like, I don't have any shenanigans. If you are breathing, you have something. That's just how us humans are wired. So own it and just find out which ones are yours. The speak up, we actually already talked about a little bit. And that was that, uncon- that silent collusion. You know, you know, and drive kind of thing. What can we do and how can we be prepared to address those comments in that moment with those folks around us? And like I said, well, I use a, a strategy called MOPSAM, which is a cheeky acronym. And Mick, do you know, do you ever see those dogs that look like they have dreadlocks? They're like really kind of crazy uh, yeah, hair. Yep, yep. yep. They're called a Hungarian pulley mop. And so in, in the training, and it's really cheeky, but in the training, I said, I bring up a slide and it has a Hungarian pulley mop. And I said, this is Sam. If we take Sam's name and we take his breed, mop Sam, that's the six strategies for remembering in the moment how you address those comments like, you know, women drive. And spoiler alert, the, the A in mop Sam is ask. You ask a question. You know, Bob is, say, this is the senior executive. What did you mean by that statement? And you mind your tone. It's not like, Bob, what did you mean by that statement? Because then Bob's shields go up and you're not going to get anywhere. 
there. But, you know, speaking up is having the courage to create that inclusive space when you see those opportunities out there. And an act out is what can we do and and look at our workplace that can be more inclusive? For example, if I am in the HR space, you know, how inclusive are our bereavement policies? And you might say bereavement, what does that have to do with it? You know, I do not have human children in this life, but I have canine children. And it's not to belittle any parents who are listening, but my dogs are my life. I love my kids. And one company I was working with, they changed their bereavement policy to acknowledge non-human family members and the bereavement that happens with that. I'm like, that is beautiful. You know, that's a little thing, but that's acting out. That's being more inclusive and bringing other folks to the table. What else can you do within your workplace to act out and really find those ways to open up and be more inclusive within your sphere of influence within the workplace? So think in, speak up and act out. I really love that, Steve. So think in, speak up, act out. That last point that you made, that's about showing that your actions match your values and beliefs. So it's, it's not good enough to just say we believe in a workplace uh, that's inclusive. It's your actions that make the big difference as to whether people believe it or not, whether they trust it, and whether you're going to attract and retain people that want to work in an inclusive work- workplace where they do feel like they belong. Really, really nice, Steve. On the unconscious bias, dot some I's and cross the T's on that one, it, it's very very true. Human beings are wired for bias. It's biological and it's also about survival. The bias itself is not the danger. It's how you act on that bias. So taking the time to notice and name bias when it occurs and think about how you're going to respond to that bias. And if you can let it go and just it doesn't impact the way that you act, speak or do anything, then that's okay. And don't, if you're sitting there thinking, you know, uncompassionately about yourself when you have these thoughts. You are a human being, but it's how you actually respond to that bias that's more important. Yeah. One of the things that I'm, I'm actually, for those who are watching, you're seeing Steve like do all these slide things because it's kind of fun. I love doing this. But one of, and I, I talk about unconscious bias in my keynote because I, I love that neuroscientists have figured this out, that we as humans receive 11 million bits of information at any one moment. With Every nerve ending is collecting data, the cones in your eyes, silly in your ears. We're getting 11 million bits of data at any one moment. But our conscious mind can only focus on 40 bits of data, according to neuroscientists. So we're getting 11 million, but the unconscious or the conscious mind can only look at 40. So there's a delta or a gap of 99.9999996% of all the data you're getting is being managed by your unconscious. So of course you have some biases out there because that's just our operating system is like that. But the challenge as an inclusive leader is which ones do you own and how do you stop your actions, your thoughts, your words from succumbing to that unconscious stuff? Yeah, brilliant, Steve. I love that illustration and those slides are awesome, by the way, for those that are watching the video. That's really cool. <laughs> it was funny cool. when I did this for Universal Studios as a keynote, they just thought it was really funny. So. Yeah, that's really cool. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Steve. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I want to take us now to our rapid round. So what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? Besides being gay, <laughs> in all sincerity, you know that a 20 year old white, quote unquote, straight, cisgendered Steve isn't the only view of the world. And, and I'm so glad that I have that perspective. I'm so glad that my authentic self is in that other category because I don't think I would be as empathetic to all the differences of people had I not experienced or known that. So I think I'd tell 20 something Steve to you know, open your eyes a little bit more. Yeah, well done. Right now, I have to put this caveat ahead. Apart from your own book, What is your favorite book? 
You know, I, I had to think about that. And, and I, I, it's like trying to pick a child. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in my office. I have, I love to read. I have tons of books everywhere. I have to say though, probably one of my most favorite books I read mostly because of how it impacted me was A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It was like the first time I read a book and I really got into it and really studied it and explored it versus just, oh, I got to read this for class. And so thinking back, I think it was in middle school or something like that, you know, when I was a kid, but Tale of Two Cities seems to be the one that comes to my mind or Les Mis. Les Miserables, because that's the first time I actually had to read a book in French, and that was a hard book to read in French, but there's that. Oh, well done. All right. Excellent. And what's your favorite quote? Probably from my mom. And I actually put this in my book, Pride Leadership, but she said, never underestimate the power of the admin. And my mom, by context, she was a elementary school teacher or a, a school secretary at an elementary school, but she ran that school. I mean, the principal would look to her to do everything. And it really taught me such a foundational idea that when you're building relationships, especially in the workplace, don't just assume you have to go up the food chain or hit that sea level. Everybody has influence within the workplace. And that's when I say leader and leadership, it, it's all y'all meaning you know anybody who has influence is a leader period it's not by title or where you sit in the org chart and, and that kind of started from my mom where she said you never underestimate the power of the admin because you never know where the true power really sits well said steve a very powerful message there finally there's going to be people that are really curious about this i had a wonderful conversation i'm sure people have learned a lot but if people want to then put some of this into practice and they need your help or they just want to connect with you because you're a very interesting guy with some great views on the world how of people find you. Yeah, it's pretty easy. If you go to topdoglearning.biz, there you can find out about me, about my team, the various books I have going on, all of our training stuff, keynotes and training and leadership and all the fun things that we can offer to help your workplace be a bit more inclusive as a leadership perspective. So topdoglearning.biz. Oh, well done. All right. Thank you, Dr. Steve Yacovelli. Thank you so much for expanding our minds today. I know that I learned a lot from today's discussion. Our audience would as well. It made me stop. It made me think. It made me reflect. I feel like a richer person from having this conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Mick. And thank you for creating this space for, for leaders and for people to grow and really have an impact in the workplace. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care Look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.